It's 835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Glad to have you with us. A lot of ground to cover on today's program. I'm off Thursday and Friday, so a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff I want to get to before we leave. Local stuff, statewide stuff, national stuff, heavy-duty stuff, fun stuff. It is all coming up. Let us get started like we always do. Three big things, things I think you need to know about so you can discuss at lunch or at the gym or at the water cooler or the coffee closet or whatever. Big thing number one. The anti-religion zealots out of Washington, D.C. are back for decades, decades. Um, Brookfield Central High School has hosted a, a put on a concert around the holidays. It's an annual, they call it a concert of sacred music, right? Some of the songs, because it is sacred music, Some of the songs that they play are things like, Do You Hear What I Hear? and Oh Holy Night, because it is sacred music. For decades, the concert has been held in St. Mary's Visitation Parish in Elm Grove. It is something that lots of people look forward to every year. Last year, the one of these groups of anti, these, these people who have no meaning in their own life, who go around looking for things to be offended about and object to other people who have meaningful things in their life, send this group is called Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Send a letter to the Elmbrook superintendent and the Brookfield High School principal saying, if you continue to have the concert of sacred music in St. Mary's Parish, we will sue you. And, and by the way, we don't like the fact that as part of the concert of sacred music, you play things like Do You Hear What I Hear and Oh Holy Night. Now, I, I don't know how you can have a concert of sacred music without playing some of those tunes, but that's just me. So in any event, now the school board, you might recall a few years ago, went through other litigation with this same group. They didn't like the fact that... Um, in one of the Brookfield schools that held its graduation ceremony in Elmbrook Church. And the argument was that even though this church has this wonderful sound system and all this parking for people and it's a great environment, that the fact that somebody might have to actually walk into a church and walk past a cross on the way to going and sitting in their seats and waiting for the graduation ceremony, despite the fact that the sound system was wonderful, it was air-conditioned, it was convenient, we couldn't have it because somebody might be offended. Well, they spent years in litigation, and ultimately, in what I thought was a depressing and disappointing decision, the school district lost this. And the argument was, well, all right, there might be some some person, again, searching for meaning in their pathetic little life who might go to the graduation and actually have to be offended because they sat in this facility. So graduation, though, I think is different than than concerts. Arguably, everybody has to go to graduation. Nobody has to go to a concert of sacred music if you don't want to. And my guess is, if you're going to a concert of sacred music, you're probably not going to be offended that the thing is held in a church. Anyhow. What they do, this group sends this letter saying, if you continue to have the concert where it's been for decades, we will take you to court. We will tie you up for years in court. It will cost the taxpayers of the district tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, and you may, in fact, lose. All right. So what has happened is that the school board has decided, okay, we're, we're not going to fight with this. Um, you know, we're going to relocate 
Um, we're going to find a, a different place, and so we're going to move the concert out of St. Mary's, and we're going to put it on the uh, campus at, at Carroll University. So that's that's how we're going to handle this. Um, we haven't decided yet how we're going to handle the are we playing sacred music at the concert of, for sacred music. But they've ended up backing down to this group. I understand why the school board did what they did. They are trying to be responsible stewards of taxpayer money, and they're sitting and saying, okay, we've got another venue that we can find, so why why bother, why, why get into this fight? I mean, why get into the you-know-what match with the skunks? We'll just, we'll just give in, we'll cave in, we'll move. I don't criticize the school board for that. But the bigger picture, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is absurd to say to a high school, number one, you know, you, you, you can't have a concert of, of sacred music because if, if the sacred music involves playing religious tunes, that, that's just absurd on its face, number one. But, but number two, if, if this particular church provides an outstanding venue for the event and people like it, what is wrong with having the event there? I think it is I think it is a damn shame that this concert had to be moved because you've got some people sitting in Washington DC who've decided that they want to be offended by this. And I think our entire definition of separation of church and state is completely and totally out of whack and needs to desperately be reined in by the Supreme Court. But let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, the school board gives in to the demands. Do you think that there is anything wrong with the school having a concert of sacred music and having it like they have for the last several decades in this parish? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 841. Jeff Wagner. 844, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, if you're just tuning in. All right, um, the Brookfield Central, for decades, has had a concert in the fall, in the, actually around the holidays. It's called the Sacred Music Concert. They do it at St. Mary's Parish because it's a great venue. Americans for Separation in Church and State, the, these anti-religion zealots, these people desperately searching for meaning in their lives um, who just object to anybody else having meaning in theirs, sends them this letter saying, number one, you've got to move it. It's been going on for decades, but you've got to move it out of the church because we think it's awful that people who might want to attend this concert would have to walk into a church. Okay, it's a sacred music concert. Okay, that's number one. Number two, they also say, not only do we want you to move it out of the church, we don't think that you should be playing sacred music. Have you looked at those things, those songs that you're playing? You're playing, um, you know, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You're playing songs like that. That That's appalling. What a separation of church and state. You play Oh Holy Night. We demand that you stop doing that. The Elmbrook School Board met and decided, we just don't want to fight this battle. We will move the concert. They found a different venue at Carroll University. But... The, this group says, well, you know, this issue hasn't gone away. They haven't responded to our issue on content. How can you have a sacred music concert if you don't play sacred music? And have we really gotten to a point where a public school band can't have a concert involving sacred music? 414-799-1620. This, 
Okay, I understand why the school board backed down and moved the venue. It is important. It is unfortunate, but they're trying to save money. I would have liked to have seen them fight that. But when it comes to changing the material or canceling the concert because these anti-religious haters out of D.C. want to do it, I mean, really? Mark in Brookfield. Mark, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for letting me call sure. in. I, um, I, I agree with the concept of separation of church and state, of course. Uh, the Constitution sure. says a lot about that. But I had kids graduate from Elmbrook schools, and I sat in pretty uncomfortable seats there in the high school yeah. gymnasium and would have been much more comfortable in the Elmbrook uh, church and don't you know, personally have any trouble with that. And I guess just sort of a litmus test, reality test for, for you and, and everyone listening um, if Brookfield had a wonderful mosque right in the middle of the city, great sound system, great capacity, comfortable seats, I, I want to make sure that everybody's comfortable having, for instance, an Elmbrook School graduation in a mosque as well, because that should be a, a reasonable flip test. Right, and and I, I agree, Mark. Now, of course, we're not talking about, though, a graduation ceremony there. Now, this was this was three years ago. Now, I think the decision by the court was wrong. But in that particular case, it, it, the argument was it was a graduation ceremony, and people, you have to attend the graduation ceremony. All right, so you might have, you know, one of the little snowflakes who will be, or their parents who will be offended by walking into the church, but their choice is you don't get to go to the graduation ceremony. This is not a graduation ceremony. This is, it is the most voluntary of events. It is a concert, you know, of, of sacred music. It is a concert. So nobody... Look, I mean, if people want to go and enjoy that, that's fine. But to me, it's completely different as far as the nature of the event and the mandatory nature of it. This is just, it's a concert that you have one way or the other. But still, I mean, have we really gotten to the point that you can't have any public school events staged in religious places? I don't believe that that's what separation of church and state is all about. And I am confident that our founding fathers would collectively be rolling over in their graves if they saw some of the bizarre ways this has been interpreted. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage uh, Talk and Text Line. Scott in Sheboygan. Scott, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think? So I went to a lecture Friday night and they were kind of addressing these issues. And they said, our education system is building in compliance versus free thinking. And so much of the stuff, no one is ever challenging yep. the people who are voting on this, that we as the people should be standing up and saying, no, we are okay with this. Yeah, and, I, and just in fairness, Scott, I'm sympathetic to the school board because they're sitting there saying, okay, we fought the graduation issue. We spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. We lost. All right. We have here, we have, even though it's been going on in the church for decades, we, we have an alternative venue that we think is suitable. So, I mean, it, we'll, we'll just cave in. We'll, we'll give in because we don't want to fight this. But you're right. Then, then, see, these groups are never happy because they're not happy. The, the anti-religion people aren't happy. They say, okay, now you've moved it out of the church, but we don't like the fact that you're playing Oh Holy Night. Well, where do you draw the line? They're never, ever going to be happy. I think you're right. You've got to push back. And I think most of the community would support a pushback. I agree, and I, I do have sympathy for the school board, sure. but it's the parents and the citizens that need to give the, uh, if you excuse the term, the cojones to the school board right. to, um, right. to 
that there's public pressure to do this. Yeah, and that there's going to be public support. I mean, thanks for the call, because, again, these groups aren't happy. It's not like, okay, we've got it out of the church, this concert of sacred hymns, sacred music. It's not in the church. Hooray, hooray, we, we won. Now nobody has to go there and be exposed to, again, the religious cooties. Although if you're going to a concert, like I say, of sacred music, you know, you're probably not going to be offended by religious type of things. But okay, put that aside. But that's not happy. Now they're going after the content of the concert. They're never, ever happy. And what did we learn? We know that appeasement does not work. Appeasement of tyrants does not work. And these groups, these anti-religion zealots, they are tyrannical organizations that have this really, in my opinion, bizarre interpretation of the role that, again, religion plays in public life. And they push the envelope, and they push the envelope, and they've got lawyers on staff, and they know that they can economically bully school boards, and they do it every chance they get. Maggie in Wauwatosa. Maggie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Listen, why don't they do it the American way if they're all about uh, government and what have you, and Put it to a vote, and my guess is the majority rules. But my other, a couple of other points. Isn't Carroll College, isn't that affiliated with a religious sect as well? Yeah, it is, but apparently this auditorium that they have has no religious symbols in it. I mean, oh. you don't, you don't, that's my understanding. You don't have to walk past a cross to get oh, in there or something. Okay. Well, right. That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. How about this? Next thing you know, they're going to go after the Christmas break and the Easter break because. They are breaks in the public schools that are built around religious holidays. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So then we won't have Christmas, we won't have Easter. Well, it, it, you know, it, it, see, Maggie, I just want people to think about how, how ridiculous some of this is. You, Essentially what this group is saying is, you. I think some of the most beautiful songs ever written are, are some of these religious songs, the, the sacred music. I mean, I think Silent Night is as beautiful a song as has been written. Are we really saying now that you, you, you can't teach, you, you can't have a concert, you can't teach people in a public school to learn how to play O Holy Night or Silent Night because, again, it's a, it's a sacred song and it's got religious overtones. Well, I, I sure as heck hope we haven't gotten to that point oh, in this country. You know what? It, has anybody ever heard Silent Light or Ave Maria or any yeah. some other religious song sung by Barbara Streisand, who happens to be Jewish? Right. Yeah. That they're it's, they're done beautifully. Well, see, see that, and see that's kind of my point, Maggie, on, on the content issue because you can you can certainly view Silent Night or Ave Maria or or any of those songs. You can view them in the religious context, and some people clearly do. But you can also view them as what they also are, apart from the religious connotations, just just beautiful pieces of music. And it would be a tragedy if groups like these haters out of Washington, D.C., were able to say to public school students and to public schools, no, you, you can't. You can't have your bands learn these songs. You can't have them perform these songs because there's also, in addition to the historical element, there's also, again, this religious component that's there. But, again, these these groups are bullies. They're bullies. They've got lawyers on staff. They've got a bunch of haters that help fund them, and they intimidate the different school boards. And I'm, I'm sorry I'm sorry that Elmbrook School Board did what they did. I think the school board people were all very reluctant to do it, but they're just sitting here saying, okay, you know, we – 
They've got all these economic needs, and it's tough for us to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars into you know litigation that we may or may not win. Who knows? But at some point in time, when it comes to the issue of content, you know, we, we will revisit this because if the school board decides after decades that they are going to cancel the concert because of its content, well, it's one thing if you move the concert and you find a different venue that's acceptable. Unfortunate because, again, you're giving in to the bullies. It's another thing if you cancel it entirely. Now, they haven't taken that position. At some point in time, you have to stand up for what's right. You have to stop letting yourself be pushed around by the haters. And I, my guess is um, taxpayers in the Elmbrook School District would support that 100%. It's 8.57, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. He's already set the team record for home runs in the month of April, and it's only the 26th. What does Eric Thames have up his sleeve next? I was there last night when he hit a home run. Find out today as the Brewers go for the sweep of the Reds. Bob and Jeff begin our pregame coverage of Miller Park, the matinee. It is 12.05 this afternoon. Big thing number two, what's going on at the county jail coming up in about 15 minutes. And Donald Trump's sanctuary city order blocked by a judge in California. We will discuss that all. But before... Before the break, before Follow the Brewers, which is about 9.10 this morning, there are certain stories that I just, you would never want to have your name attached to. I mean, it's kind of like you don't want to be that person that's been accused of going in and, and stealing the jar of donations that people are making to Jerry's kids or whatever. All right, th- this is the other story. All right, roofer caught on camera stealing panties, deputies say. A local roofer was caught on a motion sensor camera swiping six pairs of underwear and two bras from the bedroom of a Waukesha County home where he was working. The homeowner called the police after he got an alert on his phone, pulled up a video which showed a man walking into a bedroom empty-handed, rummaging through a dresser, and leaving with what looked like a swimsuit, according to the criminal complaint. The Genesee homeowner called the sheriff's deputies, told them two roofers were working on his house, didn't have permission to enter, much less to rifle through presumably his wife or his girlfriend's or his kid's underwear drawer. Deputies questioned both men who denied going into the house. They searched their truck and belongings, including a plastic Goodwill bag one of them was using as a lunchbox. Inside the bag, deputies found the underwear and bras wrapped up in a towel along with soda, water, and some food. The bag belonged to one of the roofers, 56 years old, who now faces felony burglary charges. Um, The guy who has a handful of prior convictions for drunken driving, reportedly told the deputies prison addressed his drinking issue, but not his other issues. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's put this in the category of number one. If you're hiring a roofing company or roofers, what are those two words you want to remember? Background check. That's number one. And, and number two, yeah, prison addressed his drinking issues, but not the other issues like... I don't even know what that means. And you know what? I don't want to know what that means. Follow the Brewers is coming up, and then the latest in the Milwaukee County Jail death. Stick around. It's 859. It's 914. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Listener Elaine, Elaine in Greenfield, is the winner of our Follow the Brewers contest for today. Elaine wins four tickets to see the Brewers play at Miller Park against the Atlanta Braves. She is automatically registered for our drawing on Friday. One of our five daily winners will win a chance to 
will win, not a chance, will win the prize. They'll get to go to Cincinnati to watch the Brewers play the Reds over Labor Day. And at least so far, Brewers just own the Reds. Uh, three out of four in Cincinnati last weekend and uh, weekend before last. And then uh, two in a row today. This homestand, chance to sweep the Reds game. Our coverage starts at 12.05 today. What a lot of fun. All right. I, I discussed this yesterday. The, the details that continue to emerge get worse and worse and worse. The Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office is conducting an inquest into the death of this inmate in the Milwaukee County Jail. Now, let me let me just back up and explain the inquest system for, for just a minute. Um, in the state of Wisconsin, a district attorney can convene an inquest. You select, the way this works is you select a six-person jury. You present evidence to the jury, and you ask the jury's opinion as to whether or not there's probable cause to believe a crime has been committed. It is an advisory position that the jury can come back and say no probable cause or, yes, we think people should be charged, and the DA still doesn't have to do it. Um, It is a rarely used procedure. There are a couple of reasons why DAs do this. And John Chisholm, I think this is only the second one he's done since he's been the DA. Mike McCann used to do these all the time. There are a couple reasons why they do them. Some DAs, like Mike McCann, the former DA, I believe uses these inquests for political cover because there's no right to cross-examine witnesses Um, What you have is it's the district attorney that steers the direction. And you can pretty much, if you're the district attorney, in an inquest, you can pretty much, by the way you present and shape the evidence, you can pretty much convince a jury to do whatever you want them to do. Mike McCann, the former DA, used to use them in police shootings. And he'd have these inquests, and the inquest jury always came back and said, okay, no probable cause to believe anybody should be charged. That might have been the right decision. But in my opinion, McCann used to do this for political cover because then he could say, okay, well, the jury has said, you know, no probable cause. I don't have to, I don't have to make this decision. Most of the DAs that I have known over my years of practicing law in Wisconsin didn't believe in the inquest system. They just said, hey, if I think that I don't, I don't need the jury to do this. If I think there's a basis for charges, I'll issue charges. If not, I, I won't. Um, The other reason to do an inquest is that you get people under oath. I mean, for example, if you're conducting an investigation, people don't necessarily – people don't have to cooperate with you. And people can say, no, I'm not going to answer, or maybe you think that they're being evasive. An inquest allows you to call people. It allows you to put them under oath. And if they take the fifth, that's fine. But then you have them on record. So there is a fact-finding value to this as well i don't know what's going on here and i don't know what the purpose is because at least as i put things together it seems to me pretty clear that the milwaukee county district attorney's office believes that there there was a crime committed in connection with this that's just my sense from reading the way they're presenting the evidence but but i don't know here is here's what's been presented so far at the inquest either in form of testimony or in the form of, of statements that have been made you have this 36-year-old guy um, who was, his, his name is Terrell Thomas. Um, actually, he was 38 at the time. He had a mental illness. He was bipolar. He was the guy that is was involved with shooting someone at the Potawatomi Casino. All right? 
Um, and then later on, firing shots. He was arrested. He was put in the Milwaukee County Jail while he was waiting, awaiting further court proceedings. The guy has a mental illness. He apparently um, flooded his jail cell, on, and maybe more than once, maybe more than one jail cell. You know, I would turn on the water in the sink or stop up the toilet or whatever, cause the jail cell to flood. All right. He got put in solitary confinement. Now, keep in mind, the guy has a mental illness, gets put in solitary confinement. And what the jailers do is because he has flooded his jail cell before, they shut off the water in the jail, in the in the cell that the guy's in, in solitary. So he's got no water in, in the cell. Um, the jailers that do this apparently don't communicate to other jailers that there's no water in this cell. The guy ultimately goes for eight days without water, and he ends up dying of dehydration. Uh, There's all sorts of jail protocols that apparently weren't followed. Um, There's supposed to be reports that are issued when you're doing things like this. None of these reports. The the suggestion is that nobody was told about these things. Nobody apparently, he's supposed to be taken out of the cell for at least an hour a day, even if you're in solitary and given some exercise. That didn't happen. Um, They brought him food, but they don't bring water when you're in solitary and you're supposed to, like, drink out of the sink. Well, because the water was shut off, um, that, that didn't happen. There are surveillance videos, or apparently there were surveillance videos of some of the interaction between the guards and this guy. Those surveillance videos have now gone missing and or been destroyed. So there's allegations like that. Yesterday they had a, an expert in peniology that was testifying, and um, the, the testimony was kind of shaking. And I, I will tell you something. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with this. Uh, the people that were testifying yesterday described the, the way this man was treated. And again, you're talking about somebody who has a mental illness um, for the way he was treated. When we're talking about somebody with mental illness, um, the way it was described yesterday is it's unconscionable, it's inhumane. Um, the particular expert who was saying said they didn't see any legitimate peniological reason to keep a person in these conditions. Um now, here you have somebody who is not sympathetic, you know, not sympathetic um, because, I mean, he, he, he shots, you know, he shot somebody at the Potawatomi Casino. But you also have somebody who suffers from a mental illness and was essentially left to die in a jail cell for eight days. Right, our number, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The, the more I hear about this... I don't know. I don't know whether there's actually going to be you can identify anybody in particular and say this person needs to be charged with a crime. Don't know about that. But, you know, if the way this man was treated is not criminal, it should be. This is absolutely appalling. And I don't know where I look. I understand it is very tough to run a prison. It's very tough to run a jail. It is a thankless job. But I will tell you something. In my opinion, you cannot throw somebody who is mentally ill in a jail cell and essentially abandon them for eight days and have them die of dehydration. This is somebody who, I I, I get the fact that he was a disciplinary problem, but it was a mental health issue. How could you just leave this man in a cell essentially unintended to die? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 
924, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Pete in Waukesha. Pete, good morning. Good morning. The only question I have is this this man was supposed to be mentally ill. He was mentally, yeah. He was, bi- he was bipolar, yes. Yeah. When you're thrown in jail, does that mean that you're just thrown in there, nobody cares about you, nobody checks on you, has he no family that worried worried about him? Uh that's the main thing I can't quite figure out. And uh, these guys act up. They do. Belligerent or whatever else you want to say. And, you know, what's what's the answer? That's kind of what I'm looking for. Well, about. I guess, I mean, I no, I mean, th- thanks. I mean, Pete, I mean, here, here's what the answer is. If, I mean, and I understand he was presenting a disciplinary issue. I, I get that. Then, and maybe the answer is, okay, a, a solitary cell, confinement cell, for somebody who's mentally ill in the throes of, like, the, the bipolar thing, maybe that, that's not where you got to keep him. Maybe you got to move him out and get him some mental health treatment or get him some meds or whatever. But you, you can't... You can't just leave him to die. And that's that appears to be pretty much what they did. They left him to die, and nobody nobody looked in on him. Um, you know, he was getting gradually worse. Apparently, he was acting up in the beginning, and then as he became more and more dehydrated and weaker, they said, well, he didn't say anything. He didn't complain. Well, okay, well, that's because, again, the man's in the process of dying. And I understand it's a jail. I understand that there's you've got issues with these mentally ill prisoners, and it's tough to do it. But you can't just abandon somebody in a jail cell. And that, it certainly sounds like it's what they did. They were supposed to take the guy out for an hour every day. They didn't do that. It was just kind of, all right, well, he's not a problem to us anymore. No, he's not a problem because he's a mentally ill guy that's dying. And I'm pro-law enforcement. I am. I appreciate how tough the correction system is. But this strikes me as being wrong. Let's talk to Shane in Milwaukee. Shane, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hey, um, I, I tell you, I... I I've been a firefighter now for 16 years and uh, worked in a private ambulance. And uh, I tell you, people do all types of things to us, you know. Sure. And uh, you can't lose that professionalism because what he got charged with and everything, that's all lost now. Now now the focus is on what happened to him. You know, you you have to buckle up and check in on a guy, even though you don't want to. Right. You know, but you, you got to be a professional. And, and, uh, when, you deprive, when you deprive somebody of their liberty and you, you take them off the streets, that the society becomes responsible for for their care or at least, right. you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying, you know, you have to treat the guy like like it's a Taj Mahal. But when right. you have somebody that is clearly mentally ill and in the throes of that mental illness, you can't. You can't just take their water away from them. And, and let, I mean, this was eight days. We're not talking about one or two right. days. We're talking about eight days that they didn't turn right. the water on. Right. Well, they were trying to diffuse the problem sure. by not having a problem. But sure. you just can't You can't do that. Right. You, you have to deal with them. You have to make contact and everything. You know, you have to do their protocols. Right, exactly. And and if it's because of the mental illness that's taking effect, you got to get somebody in to take a look at him and say, okay, what what do we need to do? Maybe right. maybe we can't keep him in this particular cell. Maybe we, maybe we need to get him to you know the, the mental health place or whatever. You can't right. just leave somebody to die for eight days. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, worst they could have did was you know handcuff him and give him an IV with fluids. Right, right, something, you know. right, right, somewhere along the line that you notice that. Thanks, Nicole. And of course, some people are saying, well, he didn't complain. Other inmates apparently 
there's testimony from other inmates that they were telling the, the staff, hey, you better look in on this guy. You better get him some water. They're saying, well, he didn't complain. Well, no, I, I don't think he complained. But you, All right, is that really going to be the standard, that you have somebody who's in custody, who's mentally ill, that, gee, he didn't, he didn't complain about this, so we didn't think that there was a big deal, that he didn't have access to water for eight days. Uh, let's talk to Gene in Milwaukee. Gene, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Gene. What, what I'm thinking about is, didn't they ever bring him any food in seven days? I mean, don't they, isn't it the old saying, three huts and a cot? My understanding is they brought him food, but they uh-huh. didn't bring him liquids because when you're in solitary confinement, um, for disciplinary purposes, if you want to drink water, you drink it out of the sink. But he couldn't drink it out of the sink because they shut off the water. <laughs> well, that doesn't make any sense. The whole thing no. stinks. No, it, well, it, right. Thank, it, I mean, it, it does. It, it, the whole thing, it doesn't make any sense at all. Now, again, I don't know if you're going to be able to pinpoint that there was criminal behavior or criminal negligence on the part of any particular individual, although I will tell you, um, as a former prosecutor, when I hear that there's videotapes that have suddenly disappeared, that raises all sorts of, of red flags. Um, and, again, I don't know whether this is just screw-ups or people following through the failing the system um, but at least based on what they're presenting thus far and again that's why I started this off when you do these inquests it's a one-sided presentation um, it, it's the DA presenting the evidence that the district attorney wants to present and you really don't hear the other side of the story having said that though if you're following as I'm following this inquest and you're looking at the evidence that's presented it seems to me jail protocols have been violated, and just basic tenets of human decency have been violated as well. It's 9.35, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <clears throat> Looking at the radar, we have light to moderate rain moving into the area, so if you're out and about, drive safely as the rain moves into the area. Just a couple thoughts on the, uh, the, the prison thing. And again, m- maybe there's another side of the story. That's why I wanted to caution people. Because at these at these inquests, it's not a trial. Witnesses aren't cross-examined. You don't have, for example, lawyers for the jailers there, you know, asking questions and, and pursuing this thing. It, it's a one-sided presentation. That's just the way that the system works. Um, but and so maybe there maybe there's explanations for these things. But I'm telling you, you just look at at least the evidence that's being presented, one-sided or not, and you get the idea that you, you have. This was a death that should not have occurred, and and I think it's it's touching a nerve. Um, let's see, Steve on our text line writes, "I'm sick over the barbarism of these jailers. I'm all about tough on crime, but the jailers involved are no better than the worst criminal." I told my wife that if someone isn't charged, I will be marching against this injustice. I am from Oconomowoc, and I've never felt so sad over what I believe was cruelty that was exhibited here. Um, let's see. Then you've got. Um, well, a number of people are again raising these different types of issues, and I'm it, being a jailer is a tough, tough, tough thing. But when you take somebody's liberty away, you take responsibility for making sure, doing everything you possibly can to keep them safe. And this, I, I, this is not a deal where you know inmate jailers like look away for an hour and a half, and the guy grabs bed sheets and hangs himself. Okay, there's. That's that is that is always unfortunate when it happens, but a lot of times that is that is that's just simply not preventable because you can't watch somebody in a solitary confinement cell twenty four seven. But this this isn't something that happens spontaneously. This death is something that happened gradually over the period of a week, and I, it it's just not right.
It's just flat not right. Big thing number three. President Trump's sanctuary city order blocked by a federal judge out of, wait for it, San Francisco. Uh I understand that judges, both in the state court system and the federal court system, do not like the fact that they are being criticized for essentially being tools of politicians. But if they don't like being criticized for being political tools, my comment would be don't behave like a political tool. All right. um, President Trump imposed, uh, again, an executive order January, which essentially said – all right, sanctuary. We have a law. There is a federal law on the books that says that cities have to cooperate with federal law. Right now, I don't think that that's necessarily this uh, the, the, this unusual sort of thing. That if you've got a federal law, states, counties, cities have an obligation to follow the federal law. Right? I mean, we all the rest of us have to follow federal laws. Well, you have a number of these these cities which have gone rogue and have decided we don't like the immigration laws. So we are going to declare ourselves to be a sanctuary city. And again, that the term sanctuary city means different things to different people, but essentially it means that, that you're not going to the, the that the local law enforcement does not cooperate with federal immigration officials. Don't they don't tell them, for example, if they've arrested somebody who's you know in custody but is also illegally in the country they don't notify immigration it's it's things like that and, and this is this is i guess the sanctuary cities ways of making themselves you know feel good and important and then when the illegal the person who's here illegally bails out and goes out and kills somebody well they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say well that that's just kind of the cost of doing business so president trump ha- has said through the attorney general here's what's going to happen you know, if, if you decide you are not going to cooperate with federal law as you're required to do, we are going to shut off funding, um, federal funding that you get for anti-crime programs. And our position is, hey, if you don't want to cooperate in helping deal with crime, then, then don't expect money. Milwaukee County is one of one of the places that got a letter like that, in part because of the ridiculous um, resolution that the county board passed a couple of weeks ago. Well, anyhow, there's a federal judge in San Francisco who's now issued a nationwide injunction temporarily halting the president's threat to withhold unspecified federal funding from cities that refuse to cooperate with immigration officials. This is, again, this is a, in my opinion, a politically motivated decision by a very left-wing judge designed not to follow the law but rather to advance the particular peculiar social policy that the judge wants to have into effect. As we have talked about on this program before, this is how the federal government operates. The federal government says, we think the drinking age should be 21. So states, you can set the drinking age at any level you want, but if it's not 21, you're not getting federal highway money. Because we believe that, you know, allowing 18 or 19-year-olds to drink makes it more dangerous on the highways. So fine, you want to do this, but then there's no federal highway money. This is the same thing. You decide that you do not want to follow federal law. We believe that you are making your communities more dangerous. If you want to do that, fine, but you're not going to get federal grant money. 
So that's and now you have a judge saying, well, I don't think you should be able to shut that off. That is it is, in my opinion, it is a ridiculous decision. I think it will be likely to be overruled. It's um, a decision of stunning overreach. And it gets to the larger point, which are who are these cities? Who is Chris Abley? Who is the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, to say, well, we don't we don't have to cooperate with federal law enforcement. We're going to decide that we're going to be islands, and if we want to have illegal aliens get arrested and not cooperate with, again, customs or immigration and having them deported, that should be our right. Well, why should that be their right? If you want to change federal law, change federal law. I don't think you should have any right to refuse to change federal law, and unfortunately, you've got, again, some of these left-leaning judges that have decided, all right, we don't like Trump. We don't like his immigration policies, so we are going to interpret the law in such a way to prevent him from doing things that I think are probably pretty well settled. And I have no doubt that this case is ultimately going to get appealed. It's going to go to the Ninth Circuit because, again, this is a case out of California. And as I've often argued, if you took all the loose marbles in the country and you shook them up, uh, most of them would roll to California, a couple would stop off in Madison. So this is, to me, one of these decisions by, again, somebody who's you know not necessarily got all their marbles. It'll go to the Ninth Circuit, which is another very liberal court. They will probably affirm it. It will go to the United States Supreme Court, and I certainly hope the Supreme Court uh, puts some reality back. I think President Trump, and I think the Justice Department, and I think the government has every right to say, cities, if you don't want to cooperate with the federal government when it comes to enforcing immigration law... You put your population at risk. And if you decide to do this, fine, but don't expect us to keep giving you more money. The answer is, if you want to cooperate, just follow the law, and then you'll get the dough. It is 943. Coming up in just a couple minutes, pretty soon I might be able to actually buy cookies from Jane Matinere. Except, except there's still one obstacle to the cookie bill. Stick around. It's 946, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. As things heat up on the Korean Peninsula, what real danger does the North Korean government pose to America and its allies? John Mercure examines the answer today. Tune in during Wisconsin's Afternoon News at 520. All right, this is another story that just has my blood pressure up, and it's why it's why some people get frustrated with Republicans in leadership. 48 states, 48 states allow in one form or another people to sell homemade baked goods at things like farmers markets bed and breakfasts bake sales things like that wisconsin is one of the two states that does not now we do allow some things to be sold like preserves or pickles or things like that that you make in your home kitchen but you know jane matinere is a great baker and if, for example, Jane Matinere decided that she wanted to take some of the great stuff that she bakes and she wanted to go to a farmer's market or and, and sell it, she would be violating the law in Wisconsin. It is, it is the cookie law. It is a stupid law. And like I say, 48 states recognize it is a stupid law. Jim Ott, my friend from, again, the Mequon area, Jim Ott and State Senator Sheila Harsdorf are sponsoring bills which would change the baked goods law. And it would say that for home bakers, what you could do is you would be able to legally sell up to $7,500 in baked goods a year. 
So, I mean, it's not like, all right, you, you can all of a sudden start making millions of dollars, but you could sell $7,500 of baked goods. You would also have to comply with uh, rules regarding labeling and things like that, labeling, training, and documenting the sales. But, you know, if, if you – all right, so you, you make a little bit of extra money. You make these really great cookies. People want to buy the cookies, so you go to the local farmer's market and sell them. Right now, the law says no. This is a bill that has bipartisan support. It passed the Senate overwhelmingly last year. It did not get a vote in the state assembly. The Speaker of the State Assembly, who I have known for 20-some years, Robin Voss, he killed the bill, wouldn't allow it to have a vote. Voss runs, and it's a great business, he runs his own little popcorn um, producing thing, um, and they make really good popcorn. I I, I like it a lot. Um, His big contributors are like local grocery stores that have their own bakeries and are afraid that if you let like the mom or the pop in the kitchen who's got the great recipe for brownies these some of these grocery stores are afraid that if you allow i don't know somebody who's got a great recipe for brownies to sell them at a farmers market that somehow that is going to hurt their business it is Hondo is looking at me. I swear I can't make this up. This this is the argument. It's that it's unfair competition for some of the local grocery stores that have their own bakeries and have all the different regulations. That if you had you know Jane Matinair who decides I, I make these really great things and I want to I, I want to be able to sell the, a small amount of them, um, that somehow that's going to put that's going to put some of Robin Voss's uh, grocery store contributors out of business. It is absurd. All right. Let's open this up, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is ridiculous that home bakers should not be able to, again, sell, be able to sell small quantities of their baked goods, their, their pies, their cookies, their brownies, at places like farmers markets or things like that. I think it is just absolutely ridiculous. I do not think these home bakers provide or pose any sort of significant challenge again to the the, the grocery stores that have their, their own baked goods. I understand that the Wisconsin Grocers Association is very much into protectionism and they don't want to have co op they don't want to have competition from again the, the lady in the kitchen that makes the great blueberry muffins that wants to be able to sell a small quantity. But really, I mean, have we, is, this, is this serious that, you know, Wisconsin is one of only two states that apparently, and again, 48 other states allow this to happen. You don't have people getting sick. You don't have all these problems. It's just, hey, you know, Mrs. So-and-so makes these great blueberry muffins, and she wants to be able to sell uh, a small quantity of them. I think this is anti-competitive. I think it makes no sense, and I think it's more than time for the state legislature to not allow themselves to be held hostage by one or two members of leadership. Give this an up or down vote, and my guess is in the state legislature, you're going to get 90 out of 99 assembly people who are going to vote for it. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, really? Pat in Mount Pleasant. Pat, you're first. Hello. Hi, I I agree with you. I think it's ridiculous. I think home bakers should have a chance to be out there just like everybody else. And they can't buy in the quantity of supplies that the big bakeries and the grocery stores Hmm. can. So I don't believe they're going to be that much competition to them. And they'll provide a different quality of product as well. 
probably a heck of a lot better in a way. Well, well, um, right, right. I mean, and and again, I, I mean, uh, uh, th- th- this idea that you're going to be a competitor that okay that you're going to pose a challenge to Sendex or pick and save or you know the grocery store owners that are contributing money to Robin Voss. I mean, that's stupid. I mean, it's you know okay if if I go to the local farmers market and I know there's a lady down the street that makes these great blueberry muffins. All right, buying those blueberry muffins isn't going to stop me from going and buying bread at the at the bread store or things like that. It's just not that's not how the real the real world works. Right, and it might make a difference in say it's a senior that loves to bake and sure. they're going to make seventy five hundred dollars to supplement their income for the year. Right, and why shouldn't they be able to do it? I put a call into Weingard's office the other day, but uh, I can see that I need to call boss instead or or right, yeah, he's the, the one he's the one that blocked it this has broad bipartisan right. support but last time he's the one that wouldn't give it a vote because he knows that it will pass if it gets a vote so they're trying to kill it and i look i like robin voss he's just dead wrong on this <laughs> this right. is just flat dead wrong and then there's only us and one other state that are not allowing this so yep. that that right there sends a message or should send a message so I'll be sure to give him no, a call. Good enough. And- no, thanks, thanks, thanks. Yeah, Pat, that's that's it. This is the argument I made when we had the concealed carry debate five years ago. People said, "Oh, this is going to be terrible." Well, Wisconsin was one of only two states that didn't allow some form of concealed carry. I refuse to believe that Wisconsin that that. We in Wisconsin are more bloodthirsty than people in 48 other states. I, I also refuse to believe that we in Wisconsin are so irresponsible that suddenly there's going to be all these public health problems or something like that if you let home bakers be able to sell the, their pies. And when we already have what we call a cottage food industry. I mean, you can you can sell pickles, for God's sake. You, you can sell... Um, you can sell preserves. If you want to make you know, your own jams or jellies, you can sell those at a farmer's market. So if the issue is, well, all of a sudden we're afraid people are going to get sick on the blueberry muffins, well, okay, it hasn't been happening with the preserves. It hasn't been happening with the pickles. It hasn't been happening with all this other stuff. Why do we think this is going to um, happen? Let's talk to Denny in Fox Lake. Denny, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. You know, I agree with you. I, I think there should actually be more farmer's markets and, and home-based small businesses. Like I was telling the screener, I believe the the law was put into effect to stop people from actually opening businesses in their house. Yeah. Not, you know, not to stop Aunt Millie from making a dozen cookies and, you know, right. selling. Right, and that's why the $7,500 limit to me is, is perfectly reasonable. If we were talking, I mean, once you get to a point where it's more than just kind of like the small cottage sort of thing, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, okay, you have to have the commercial kitchens and all that. And that's why I think the $7,500 limit is is reasonable because this is what you're talking about. This is Aunt Millie, you know, making her blueberry muffins that everybody loves and selling them, you know, <laughs> you know at, at the neighborhood farmer's market. Right, right. And you know what? Speaking about farmers markets, I'm re- I love them, by the way. I am absolutely a fan of them. But I got a funny feeling that, and not too long from now, uh, they're, they're going to become obsolete. Well, it, it it could be. I mean, but that, see, that's a perfect example. Okay, I I there's a farmers market uh, very close to where I I live, and um, they have great fresh sweet corn. So, you know, during the, the sweet corn season, I will go down there. I will, I'll, I'll walk down and I'll, you know, buy a dozen ears of, of corn because I, I love corn on the cob. I love sweet corn. Okay. That, 
that, that farmer's market and me stopping by and buying a few ears of sweet corn isn't putting the local grocery stores out of business. I'm still buying other vegetables from them year-round. I mean, it's, it is it is competition, but it is competition on a small level. And for, again, the, the, the commercial bakeries that I appreciate pay money and have all these regulations in the grocery stores, I understand that you – need to be protected from unfair competition. But to give the example you just gave, Aunt Millie making a couple cupcakes is not that competition. Uh, let's see, Donna in Heartland writes, I make, if I do say so myself, very tasty cupcakes. I can only treat my co-employees and neighbors because I can't sell them. I'm not going to put the big box groceries out of business. Um, I love to bake and would love to sell them. Yes, my friend and colleague, Jane Matinere, she bakes stuff for us all the time. She does a great job. If Jane decided, hey, I'd like to make a little bit of extra money, and there's this demand for this stuff, and I'm going to make my whatever, and I want to go down to the local farmer's market and sell it. Why shouldn't she be able to do that? I mean, really? She's not going to put pick and save out of business. Robin Voss, in this case, is dead wrong in blocking this. The Wisconsin Grocers Association, I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but this is anti-competitive. It is anti, I don't even know if it's fair to say small business, but it is anti-consumer. It is not what the Republican Party should stand for, and state legislators shouldn't get rolled this time. 957, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1009, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Doesn't sound like... It just comes, it sounds kind of dreary over the next few days. It doesn't sound like anything earth-shattering. But at the same time, um, my brother asked me to accompany him on an out-of-town sort of quasi-business-slash-personal trip. And so I said, sure. And don't get a chance to see Scott enough. So where we're going, it's going to be sunny and warmer. So <laughs> that's where that's where I'll be tomorrow and Friday coming back on Saturday. Just a quick trip. All right. Um, I, I just, I, I love the Brewers. I love Miller Park. Went to the game last night. Had, had a lot of fun. But there was one thing that has been bothering me since I was at the game, and I, I want to discuss this for a segment. Now, let me back into this. I am not, um, I, I am not overly frugal. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not. But I, I expect when I when I buy stuff, I expect value. I was at a restaurant a couple weeks ago. Took some uh, took some fat mice from my family out for for dinner, and it was a very very good kind of high end place. Uh, the, the steaks I had were it was like fifty bucks. Okay, which was. You know, you can get good steaks for a lot less than that, but that's fine. We were at the place. But what bothers me is you don't get anything beside the steak. You know, they, they, they charge, if you want a baked potato that probably costs like 11 cents, they charge you six bucks for the baked potato. If you want asparagus, you know, on the side, they, they charge an extra 12 bucks for that. And I guess I, I understand it's just kind of the principle of this. If you're paying $50 for a steak, you know, give me a, give me a couple green beans or a vegetable and give me the 12 cent potato. Well, you just, just roll it all in. And, and I, I get it. You don't have to go to the place, but it just kind of always bothers me because I feel like you're, you're sort of being ripped off. By, by this. Maybe it's just, maybe I'm a supper club guy and I like the stuff that's all included and things like that. But I remember walking out of there, and it's not that I couldn't afford to buy. I was very happy to buy the meal. It was a wonderful meal. But I remember thinking, I just think this was way, way, way too pricey and kind of deciding, I don't think I'm going back to this place again, even though it was a great meal and nobody made me go there and nobody made me pay it. I just, I just thought, I felt again. I don't know how to say it. Like other, you kind of get like ripped off by that. So I'm, I'm at the baseball game last night. I love what they have done with Miller Park. I, I do. It is a wonderful venue. I love going to the Brewers games. A lot of fun, and I love all the different food choices that they have um, all throughout the stands. It's it's really it's amazing. I encourage you to do it. 
But there's a but. All right. I am. I don't think of myself as a beer snob, but I do. I mean, I, I like I like good beers. Um, and I have nothing against like Miller Lite and Coors Light and MGD and those type of things. But, you know, given a choice, I, I like a good craft beer. And I'm, I'm willing, I recognize that you're going to pay more for a little, for a good craft beer than you are for, I don't know, a Miller Lite. And, and I'm cool with that. I, I, I understand that. I go out to bars all the time. I, I'm willing to do that. So I was very excited. This was the first, uh, we, we did the, we did the, the opening day broadcast. But I didn't stick around for the game. I just had this monster headache and was tired. And so th- this was the first ball game that I'd been to. So I had not had a chance to check out the new Wisconsin craft beer area that they have at Miller Park. So, again, we, we went with a WTMJ client and his friend and, and my best friend and I. So we, we get in there, and my my friend Evan and I, he, he's... I'm his wingman. He knows everything there is to know about beer. So we go up to the, the Wisconsin Craft Beer Stand. It's up on the second level, the loge level, and they have all these great choices of Wisconsin beers. Now, these aren't particularly exotic Wisconsin craft beers. It's a it's a good it's a good representative sample of different types of beers, and there's some interesting beers there. But we're not talking about really exotic stuff. So we we both order a, a beer. One of um, I, I I think it's a really nice Lakefront makes a really good IPA and and you see it all over. It's kind of ubiquitous. It's the Lakefront IPA. I like it. I think it's a good standard sort of beer. You go into the grocery store and typically they sell a six pack for for eight ninety nine. You can find it on sale a lot of time for seven ninety nine. Uh, for a six pack, you can buy a twelve pack. Typically, you can find it for about fourteen bucks, maybe fifteen. So so it's. It, it's more expensive than the Bud Light or the Miller Light, but it's not like this crazy money. So we each order one of the, the craft beers, and they're maybe 16 ounces, not more than that, but, but maybe 16 ounces. And, you know, honestly, neither one of us checked the price. Th- these, these beers were $12 a piece. It was 20, yes, Hondo was looking, it was $24 for two, for two beers. Yes, Hondo says, yeah, I mean, it was $24 for two beers. And these are, and again, th- this isn't, all right, there, there's some beer that I drink that is just really crazy, stupid money that costs a lot, but I, I like it. But that's, Lakefront IPA is not this. This is, it's a basic, solid beer, like I say, seven ninety nine for a six-pack, less than that typically on tap. You would go into a bar, you'd expect to pay like 5 or $6. Now, I understand it's Miller Park, and I understand that you're paying for, for you know the game and the overall experience and i think they've done a lot to keep food prices down but even i was stunned by what they were charging and it's not it's not that you can't afford it but it's like really it, it struck me that this was just out and out price gouging i mean they, they will you, you can get a, a 16 ounce can of like coors light or miller light Delivered to you in the stands by the guys, the beer vendors. That's nine bucks, and you can argue that that's that that's expensive, but but that's at least being delivered to you. I thought, and and by the way, the twelve dollar beers are that's not the cheapest. Apparently, they got some that are ten, but they've got others that are fourteen dollars. I mean, so it was like twenty four dollars for two beers, and I'm going, wow. All right, I'm, just one segment, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, nobody. Nobody 
says, for example, at Miller Park, you know, no, nobody says that you have to go buy the craft beers. I, I get that. That's number one. I understand that. Nobody says that you have to buy the beers in general. So it is a matter of choice. But at the same time, and I think the brewers do do a very good job of, you know, holding the line when it comes to cost. I mean, I had a bratwurst for four, I had a brat for four bucks. It, it was great. And I was looking at some of the other specialty foods. I thought it was very reasonable. I thought charging this type of money for what are good Wisconsin ordinary craft beers is nothing short of price gouging. And candidly, I mean, even though I can probably afford it, I doubt that I'm going to be buying any more of these. And I'm just I'm wondering what the market bears. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you've had a game, gone to a game, have, have you noticed this? And again, it's I, I mean, obviously. I assume that there will be people that will pay this, but I was I was stunned at how expensive this particular product was and how, in my opinion, grossly overpriced it was. Let's start with Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Yeah, it, it's ridiculously high, but I believe that there may be an agenda here, and that agenda, I believe, may be that, one... You slow people down from drinking too much. Sure as heck slowed me down. (laughs) There you go. And they also still get their money, as if you did buy two or three when you get one. I believe that this is something that they really have planned. Um, I will will be – well, see, I mean, I I appreciate you want to curb the the, the two-fisted slopper, and and, and obviously – you know, th- that's the thing. I mean, the, the people are going to be the heavy drinkers are going to be drinking the, the stuff that they brought, you know, out in the parking lot. And, and maybe that's part of the plan. I was just I, I mean, I don't know what the fair price would be. But I mean, and I appreciate that you got to pay a markup and all that. But I mean, 10, 12, 14 dollars for some of these beers. I mean, really? And and yes, yes, it, it would. You're, you're not going to have three or four of them at, at that price, and, and maybe that's a good thing. But I think there's probably a lot of people who aren't going to have one. I just, it, it's, it, I, I mean, everybody has the right to set whatever price they want. I was stunned at how much more they they were charging. Paul on the North Shore. Paul, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Jeff, thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, you know, I, I don't see. It's not a macro brew. But it's a local microbrew. Yeah. I don't see where the upcharge is for, for say, the sourcing. I mean, it literally is yeah. what three miles from, right. from Miller Park. Right. I was I was in San Diego uh, last year, and you probably are familiar with Green Flash out there. Right. Sure. I love Green Flash. Right. Yeah. Great beer. I would say that's the equivalent of the you know Lakefront Brewery for mm-hmm. us. And I think I paid eight fifty for a sixteen ounce IPA from Green Flash. Oh. You know, it's okay. local. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not like you're ordering Green Flash at Miller Park. Yeah, I could see maybe twelve bucks there by the time they source it and get the barrels right. here or whatever. But even with nationwide distribution now, it still shouldn't be that much. Yeah, no, I right, and I guess, and I was, and one of my other beefs is I don't, I, I would have had the beer anyways. I, I was, it's not clearly marked how much different stuff is. So I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people that go through that sticker shock. And again, I, I understand the brewers have done a lot to try to make stuff affordable, but. Um, and, and I'm a big fan. I'm glad they brought the Wisconsin craft beers in, but they certainly haven't made it affordable. The profit margin must be huge on that there, Paul. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And if you want to curb the two-fisted flopper, then raise the Coors Light and Miller Highlight to $12 a glass. Well, that right. I mean, yeah. Ex- if, see, that is, I mean, thanks, that, that is the other thing, that the – I am not saying that people who are up 
you know, drinking the craft beers are, are necessarily not going to pound several back. But it's a different sort of experience. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you really right, – but they, they charge a lot for the Miller Lite, too. I mean, that, that was 9 bucks, but at least that's, you know, brought to you. You've got the beer vendor that delivers this. This is you have to walk all the way down to the right field stands and stand in line for, for the beer. And I'm glad they've done it. I, I am, I am, I am. I just think the pricing is way, way, way out of line. Will they change it? I don't know. But I mean, the, the only way they will change it is if people respond by saying, we just think this is excessive and we're not going to pay this much money. And then, you know, they adjust it so that everybody deserves to make a little money. And I have no problem with people making money on those things. But um, if, if you go to this beer area, just, just beware, you're going to be paying a lot of money, much, much, much more money than you will be paying for the same product somewhere else. And I understand you charge more at a ballpark. I get all that. But twelve and fourteen dollars. Hmm. It is ten twenty-three. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. The NFL draft begins tomorrow night with round one. Who will the Packers pick? Who should the Packers pick? Wayne Larrabee dissects the possibilities in his latest podcast, The Play by Play, up now on WTMJ.com and on the WTMJ mobile app. And again, I look businesses get to set whatever prices they want for their products. And then we as consumers get to decide whether we are going to pay them, pay for them or not. I was thrilled when I heard that Miller Park was going to be selling Wisconsin craft beers. I thought that was great. I like to drink craft beers. I like to experiment with different ones. Plus, I mean, these are all Wisconsin craft beers. I think it's great to give these Wisconsin breweries exposure. So all that is super. And you, you can decide whether you want to patronize them, buy them or not. But when you're charging as much as they are charging, you kind of sort of defeat the purpose. And, um, right, if the idea is we want to restrict the, the drinking, well, okay, I, I don't really think that's it. I think they just recognize that this is an opportunity to make a bunch of money off of people. And, candidly, where they keep food prices very reasonable, at least when it comes to the – the sale of Wisconsin craft beers, I think it's essentially a form of price gouging. And I will be curious to see how it goes over. If it doesn't go over, it's not going to be because people don't want craft beers. It's going to be because people rebel at being charged what I believe are excessive prices for Wisconsin craft beers. Just saying. Speaking of excessiveness, right now the, the Common Council is continuing to jerk around, and there's no other way to describe it, um, th- these owner-operators who want to put a, a gentleman's club, a strip joint, in downtown Milwaukee by the convention center. If you go to most major cities, there are a couple of these high-end strip clubs that you will find typically in the shadow of the downtown hotels and the convention center. That while they attract some locals, what they're really they're really designed to do is to, you know, provide a place for the conventioneers to go. I mean, it's really like the out-of-town businesses that they, they patronize. In Milwaukee, while we have a couple of those places on the perimeters of the downtown area, you, you don't have one right by the heart of the convention center. So you have a couple operators of these places who've been trying to put these fo- places in. The Common Council continues to say no. There's already been one lawsuit that the taxpayers of Milwaukee lost that cost them about a million dollars for refusing to have a club. Now they want to put another one in on Old World 3rd Street. You've got the, the downtown business community, particularly folks who are trying to bring back Grand Avenue, which has been, you know, just 
a desolate eyesore for quite a while now. They're saying, oh, my gosh, if you put this high-end gentleman's club in, it's, it's going to, like, hurt our efforts at redevelopment, which is, to me, just, just crazy. I mean, I mean, seriously, you know, you're not going to put businesses in Grand Avenue because, you know, three blocks away, you've got this, this high-end strip club. And, again, you're talking about high-end strip clubs that are there to cater to, to conventioneers. And if there's problems with prostitution or drug dealing or whatever, well, you go in and you close them down. I've, I've actually said I think these high-end gentlemen's clubs probably cause less problems than some youth-oriented clubs like hip-hop clubs and things like that, including some that have been in the same area. So you've got the downtown business association saying no you can't put something in here well okay if if the common council continues to take this attitude they will simply invite another lawsuit and um you know yesterday one of the attorneys you know representing the the strip club operators now if i mean he's advocating for his clients but he said um you know here's the, the deal just so you realize um you know if you continue to maintain this attitude um you know you might you're probably looking at millions of dollars more in lawsuits, maybe as much as $10 million in, in lawsuits that you will end up losing. Now, I don't know if that's a realistic figure, but at least it's based on some track record. Here's the bottom line. Business community needs to recognize that these type of places, you, you, can't, you can't keep them out of the area. Other cities have them. It has not led to a loss of convention business or the demise of the downtown. It's what you do is you put it in, you put in appropriate regulations, and you make sure that the operators follow those regulations, and everybody will be happy. But if you continue to say no, taxpayers of Milwaukee, you're going to be on the hook for millions of dollars more. And is that really where you want to spend the money? I mean, after all, you know, $10 million in settlements to strip club operators – you could run Tom Barrett's trolley for the operating cost for a year or two. Strip club or Tom Barrett's trolley? Hmm. Strip club, Tom Barrett's trolley? Go figure. Hey, coming up in just a couple minutes, we're going to be talking about your 401k plans and whether they should go away and an interesting column in today's Journal Sentinel I want to tee up as well. 1028, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1036, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. There's a traffic situation. It's 4145 South North Avenue. That's kind of like by Mayfair. And you've got some rain moving through the area. And it looks like there was a situation with a couple cars. And they have their one lane blocked. And that's where... So it's going down from three lanes to two lanes, and you've got – that's right where there's an entrance ramp. And so it appears that they have the affected cars out of traffic. We might do an extra traffic report, but this is 4145 southbound right around North Avenue. And uh, a little bit of rain, and it looks like a collision and uh, – uh, a bit of a mess, but we'll uh, continue to keep you updated. Uh, again, we've got rain moving through the area. It, it's not it's not heavy rain. There's no severe thunderstorm warnings or anything. But um, if you're out and about, make sure you put on your lights and drive safely and do the, all those things. I I'm I'm just our text our lines are exploding with with the you know, pricing at Miller Park, and I don't want to tell the brewers how to do things and all, but. Um, like for example, uh, this is uh, one of our text lines. Dennis writes, I've been to two games thus far, and I've noticed that prices, food prices from the new vendors are way too high. As you walk by these vendors, all you see is employees waiting for customers to step up to the counter. That might, There might be a rare exception. Um, the free market is going to determine if they survive. I noticed, however, I believe fans in the stands eating and drinking, uh, fewer fans in the stands eating and drinking, looking to see you know how people adapt to it. Yeah, it is the kind of the free market, and you're always, I, I think, I really applaud a lot of the things that they're doing 
to enhance the fan experience, including like new restaurants and the craft beer. But you have to find the you have to find the right price point, and I'm not sure, especially in the craft beers. I I don't think they found it at all. Okay, there is a very interesting column in today's Journal Sentinel, written by one of their community columnists, Jim Stingle. Um, the airlines, obviously, and this is spoken from the perspective of somebody who's going to be getting on an airline to, airplane tomorrow. The the airlines. There's been a lot of airline stories. You, you had the story about United Airlines and, of course, the guy who was, you know, dragged off the flight and injured. We, we talked about that extensively. You had the other story involving Delta, where you had the, uh, the, the again, you know, passengers, the, 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 the American Airlines, I'm sorry, not Delta, American Airlines, where you had the woman with the two kids gets on with the stroller, and then the guy pulled, the flight attendant pulls the stroller out of her hands and hits her in the head with it and almost hits the kids and then challenges one of the other passengers to, to a fight. I mean, all right, so those those are cases where, I, in my opinion at least, you, you clearly, even though the customer wasn't necessarily always right, the airline did not handle it appropriately. In, in Jim Stingle's column today, it's a more interesting, and it's a more complex, and it's a more common story. Now, one of the things that I always do before I get on an airplane is that I pee. I always go to the bathroom. That is my rule, all right, because you never know how long. First of all, I mean, who likes to use airline restrooms, if you, if you, airplane restrooms, if you, can, if you can avoid it? But because you, you never know how long you might be on that plane before it actually gets up in the air and they turn off the seatbelt signs. Because everybody who has traveled knows that there is a point once you get on that airplane where you're not going to be allowed to use the restroom on the plane until the plane gets in the air. And then it, it, if your experience is like mine, once the plane's up in the air and that seatbelt light goes off, there's like a mad rush to use the bathroom. So I'm kind of thinking, didn't anybody go before they, they went? And, and I understand there's some people with medical conditions and all that, but, but it's like all these people can't have medical conditions. Well, anyhow, here's the story in, in the paper today. Um, about a week ago, so April 18th, it's a Delta flight from Atlanta to Milwaukee. There's a guy... Um, and, and th- this is mentioned in detail at the end of the story. I don't know if it's relevant or not, but he's a six foot three African American man with with like dreadlocks. So he's sitting. The plane's pretty full. He's sitting on one side of the plane on the aisle. Across from him is a couple lawyers and a husband and wife, and they're traveling with their daughter. Okay, so they get on the plane. The plane taxis to the runway. And the pilot comes on and says, we're third to take off, you know, and the seatbelt sign is on. Do not get up. None of this stuff. But, okay, so third to take off. You're supposed to remain seated. Federal aviation rules require you to remain seated. Well, something apparently happens, and the plane doesn't take off right away. So the plane sits in line. The story is the wait extends to about 30 minutes. So um, the guy, he's got to pee. He, the way the story says, he felt a strong need to urinate, and he figured it might be okay. He said, we weren't taking off. We were in the line, but we weren't taking off. Uh, the plane isn't moving. So what he does is, is he gets up. You know, he gets up, and he starts to go to the back of the plane to use the, the restroom. Um, the flight attendant says, no, you can't use the, the restroom because you've got to go be seated because what's going to happen is um, if, if you don't, 
if you don't follow our instructions, we're going to lose our place in line, and it's going to be even longer. So he goes, and he sits back down, but then he says he really had to go. So he returns to the restroom, goes in, relieves himself, and then you know comes back and sits down, at which point in time the pilot comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but we have to return to the gate and remove a passenger. At that point in time, they go back to the gate, and two, this is Delta, two Delta agents approach him and tells him he's got to get the things and he's got to exit the plane. Um, he refuses, and then it kind of escalates from there. Ultimately, you know, what they end up doing is they make everybody, because the guy won't leave the plane, they make everybody leave the plane, and then they put everybody else back on, but they don't put this guy in. Uh, and, you know, he says... You know, they say, hey, look, these were the instructions. We told him that he he couldn't get up. These are federal rules. These are all rules. We told him we couldn't get up. He says, I had to go. What am I supposed to do? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the position of the columnist is essentially, this this is kind of an outrage. This is an outrage. What is the guy supposed to do? And I understand and I am sympathetic. At the same time, this is a relatively routine occurrence, and I'm trying to imagine what happens and what are you supposed to do when, you know, you're sitting there, you're in line, you're waiting the taxi, and, and if everybody that decides they've got to pee decides that they're just going to take it upon themselves and get up and use the restroom. All right, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm not convinced at all that what Delta did was so absolutely unreasonable the federal rules say you've got to be seated beyond a certain point all right the delta handle this wrong should they have made the exception and and what the alternative would have been okay we go to the back of the line and we delay the flight i don't know we delay the takeoff another 30 or 45 minutes i mean do you really want that to happen every time you're on an airplane and somebody decides they've got to use the restroom before the plane takes off. Right, we discuss next. Um, honestly, I mean, I'm sorry that this all happened, but you go before you get on the plane. And unless it's unless it's an illness situation, I, I, just, I just don't think you can have people deciding that they're going to get up when you're not supposed to get up. But that's just me. We discuss next. 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line 1044. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ten forty eight, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. I one of the reasons I love this show is just the the just the, the different opinions that people have. Okay, um, all right, we're, we're talking about this guy who was tossed off the Delta flight because they're waiting in the taxiway. They're in line. He says he's got to go to the bathroom. They tell him no, you got to wait till the thing takes off. He gets up, goes to the bathroom. So they have to get out of line. They go back, and he ends up getting booted off the plane. And the question is whether. This is outrageous or not. I mean, here's just a couple of things on our text line. Um, the outrage is people thinking they can decide which rules to follow. Delta did exactly the right thing. Greg writes, in contrast, what should the guy have done? Peed in a barf bag? Come on. This isn't the image you want to have on an airliner, punishing people because you're rule Nazis. Nazis. Uh, Carol writes, can you imagine the pandemonium if everyone just did when did whatever whenever? These rules are in place for people's safety. The adult man should do what we all have done sometimes. Smile, cross your legs, and hold it. Um, uh, then another comment, what should the guy have done? Peed on himself? See, that, that's the flip side of this. But at the same time, all right, 
I, I understand, and I'm not a rules or rules guy, but when you're sitting on an airplane waiting to take off and they say, okay, and I think this also ties into like FAA rules, you know, once you're in that seat, you're not supposed to leave. And the rule is, okay, if you get up and you go use the restroom, then we got to get out of line. All right, next time you are on an airplane, do you really want to be held hostage to the person that decides, gee, I got to go to the bathroom, so I'm going to get up. And if everybody else, if this means, you know, we're, we're going to have to go to the end of the line because of the regulations, we go to the end of the line. I mean, is that what you really want? 414-799-1620 is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, good morning. Hey, good morning, uh, Jeff. Uh, my thoughts are uh, this guy's, uh, you know, he's holding up the whole plane just to go to the bathroom. <laughs> if you fly regularly, you know you have to go to the bathroom before you get on the flight if you have to do that. Mm-hmm. And if he's going to be on the plane uh, and if he's got a medical condition or something like that, Get some adult diapers or whatever. Don't hold up well, everybody. Well, this isn't a, I mean, and this isn't a medical condition. I mean, I guess and okay, I, but I, okay. So I guess the answer, the, the question would be, Mike. All right, you're sitting on the plane, and you know it's it's delayed a little bit, as often happens, and suddenly you get this overwhelming urge to go to the bathroom. I mean, what what is he? Let's say he can't hold it. I mean, what's he supposed to do? Well, I guess he uh, pees himself. I I don't know. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay. It's, it's just it's. Well, I, I would want to hold on the plane. Uh, hold up the whole plane for me. Well, that 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 I mean, thank, I mean that is, I, I guess that's partly. I mean that that is that is one of the issues, and this is where the balancing comes through. I don't necessarily think that what Delta did was outrageous. I feel sorry for this particular guy. I don't know how much urgency that there really was here, but I mean that 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 urgency that you feel for this is is always going to be somewhat subjective, and. Okay, I've got an early morning flight out tomorrow, and you know if if somebody gets up and pounds back a couple of big things of coffee and is sitting on the plane, and because it's going to be raining a little bit, you know we have to sit there for a little while. Do you really get pulled out? Do you, do you want to give the passengers that much power? Now maybe you argue this is just a stupid rule. So who cares? You should you know you should be able to be using the restroom up to thirty seconds before the plane is getting ready to you know take off. But that's not the rule that people have. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I appreciate that this it's a difficult situation, but I guess I see this differently as some of the other ones. Um, this is it's one of it's one of the consequences. And to me, the the passenger here has has blame because the passenger by his own admission he didn't go to the restroom he didn't use the bathroom before he got on the plane this was not a medical emergency this was to my understanding it was not a uh, a medical condition it was just hey you know i i thought the plane was going to be taken off quicker so i didn't take care of you know what i needed to take care of beforehand i didn't go before we, we left and then as a result of him not going before they left, what he did was he inconvenienced everybody else. And if this was a medical situation, like a medical emergency, I, I might have felt differently. If he had the flu, I might have felt differently. But here, I'm kind of sympathetic to what the airline had to do. And I guess my message would be, you know, go before you leave, for goodness sakes, because otherwise I don't want to be the guy sitting on that plane and everybody who decides they're going to get up and ignore the instructions of the flight attendants simply because they didn't do what they were supposed to do, you know, before they actually got on the plane. I don't want to be held hostage like that. So maybe you think it's a dumb rule. I would understand if you did. But still, I think he makes some I mean, I think in this case, the passenger has a lot, you know, a lot to, 
you know, a, a lot to a lot of blame to go around. And he got up. They told him to get back to his seat. And, you know, he chose, you know, not to do that. Um, all right. Let's uh, talk to Travis in Whitefish Bay. Travis, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Very well, thank you. Did Delta mishandle this? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I can't, uh, I can't say for sure because I wasn't there to see exactly what went down. But in itself, when you get up and go to the bathroom, you are not following the crew's instructions. But right. sometimes emergencies are emergencies. And, and like I said, I can't say for sure because I don't know what else happened. But, uh, sometimes you gotta, you gotta go. And sometimes the crew has to, uh, you know, keep order on the earth. So, so how do you deal with a situation? I mean, it seems to me like air, air travel is so difficult nowadays. And I guess it it just seems to me that it would be absolute anarchy if you're, you're waiting to take off and, you know, everybody's supposed to be in their seat. And apparently the rules are that if people get out of the seat, you're going to have to go get out of line or, or whatever. If everybody got to subjectively decide, gee, I really need to go to the bathroom, so I'm going to get up, planes wouldn't be leaving on time at all, it would seem to me. Yes, yes, and because of that, it's a very delicate uh, balance of uh, providing information and uh, keeping order, and, and sometimes reassuring them uh, that uh, you know we're we're keeping right. on air traffic control to get in the air, and, and giving them the information they're looking for is very important. And if I know I need to keep the airplane moving, I will tell them. I'll say, the airplane needs to keep moving occasionally on the taxiway, and, and if you stand up, we got to stop and we lose our place. But if we end up sitting for a while, I will tell them, right. I'm, I'm allowed to turn off the seatbelt sign if we are sitting for a little while and, right. and allow them to do that. And, right. and sometimes I have to talk to air traffic control and tell them, hey, I got passengers, you know, we've been sitting here for a while. Can we can we uh, sit for a few minutes and do that? And they're they're very accommodating. So what you're saying is the, the the rule, if I understood you right, the rule is that if if you're moving, yeah, obviously if you're in line, you got to keep moving, and if you're moving, everybody has to be seated or else you lose your place in line. Is that kind of is that the rule essentially? Uh, well, partially correct. Uh, we we lose our place in line if if we have a. Uh, a uh, wheels up time that um, if we don't make it in the air by a, a specific time, they have to they have to reshuffle us and okay. keep the flow moving. The other the other matter is the aircraft is moving. Everyone needs to be in their seat, right. their seatbelts on. Right, right. So, right, I get it. So, uh, if if somebody's up, if some if the crew tells you, say somebody's up and walking around, or they're in the bathroom, you're not allowed to move the plane under the rules, and that might cause you then to lose your space. At that point, yes, the Got flight it. attendants will call us and say, hey, someone's up, and we'll gently bring the aircraft to a stop. And if we are next, we could lose our spot. Now, it's different if you're number 20. That, that Right. You, you can wait for a few minutes. Right. Got it. Okay, thanks, God. I appreciate the perspective. Travis, obviously, an airline pilot. I, I just, okay, bottom line of this, I understand when you got to go, you got to go, but for the love of God... Go before you get on the plane. Go before you leave home, and then this issue does not occur. Or they've got all sorts of bathrooms right by the gates. I can tell you, before I drop on a jet tomorrow morning, I I will be going before I leave. I promise you. So I will not be the one delaying the flight. It's 1057. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.
It's 1109, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, in the world of texting, I, I just, I, and I mean, I, I, I love like the typographical errors. I was telling the story yesterday, um, that the head of our radio, our Brewers Packers Radio Network, um, Uncle Carl, w- was going to do something for me. He offered to do something for me yesterday, and I, I, I I said, well, look, you, you don't ha-. he actually did take care of it. Thank you, Uncle Carl. But I said, you know, you, you don't, I said, before he did that, I, I sent him a note saying, you know, you, you, you don't have to just, just tell me and I'll, I'll be willing to, to do it. I know you are a busy man. That is what I intended to send. But, um, in, in the haste, when I first wrote, wrote the thing up, I added a T. So, um, instead of, I know you are a busy man, it was, I know you are a busty man. <laughs> And it's like I, I actually I caught it right before I hit send because I was thinking Uncle Carl would be going what the heck is going on and you know I I don't know that's just but of course autocorrect doesn't catch it because busty is in fact a word and I'm thinking you know I don't want to I've been getting human resources explaining why I'm calling one of my coworkers a busty man so I, I was just kind of laughing about that on our text line you know one of our regular listeners sends a note in saying hey traffic situation cat in a ditch. And I'm like, okay, and then then says, I meant car. <laughs> you know? So it just because there is a difference between a car in a ditch and a cat in a ditch. Uh, just just saying. So it, that is one of the kind of things you kind of look at these typos and say, what did people mean? All right, um, President Trump today is going to be starting, and I say starting to roll out his tax reform plan. It is somewhat odd because. He's not going to be giving all the details. This is going to be, apparently, it's going to be an evolving sort of thing. And I don't know how many specifics there are. But some of the reports that are out there suggest that one of the things he's looking at doing is increasing the standard deduction that people could take, which um, for for people who file could have the potential to increase, you know, the, you know uh, give you a couple thousand dollars in tax savings on, on the average. Um, in addition... One of the things he's looking at is reducing the corporate tax rate from 35% to 15%. And um, it's very complicated as to why you would do this. And some people are saying, okay, this is in his self-interest because this would help him. It would also help a lot of, of, of small privately held corporations it it may or may first of all i I think anything you could do to reduce taxes is a good idea i I think the jury is out as to whether or not this is the best way to do it the argument would be it's fairer it's going to ultimately through trickle-down economics it's going to make it easier for these businesses to grow and they'll do more hiring and things i i just i want to see the details before i offer you know any sort of comments on that but there's there's a flip side to this. Um, any tax reform proposal that you offer that reduces tax rates means that there's going to be less money coming in. Now, many Republicans in Congress have said that even though we need tax reform, what in order for this to pass, it's got to be revenue neutral. In other words, yeah, if, if you're going to reduce the taxes coming in from certain places, the, the money's got to be coming from somewhere else. You know, we're, we're not we're not in a position where we can you know, suddenly get fifty billion dollars less coming in. So, if we want to figure out a way to make the tax system fairer, that that's cool. But but it can't be. It's got to be again revenue neutral. So the the money has to come from somewhere. One of the things that Paul Ryan has been proposing is essentially an import tax. 
And they say, hey, to, to pay for some of these tax cuts that we're talking about, you know, maybe we could pose an, an import tax. President Trump doesn't seem to be too enthusiastic about that. And my understanding is at least what he's talking about, this isn't so much a tax plan as it is sort of a, a broad sort of guideline. Um, I think it's going to be very unclear as to where the money is going to come from. One of the things that is being tossed around Congress as a way of generating more money is to eliminate pre-tax 401k plans. Now, you're, you're probably familiar, and you probably have a 401k plan, but, but here's how it works. 401k plans are, in my opinion, the, the greatest single thing that the government has done to encourage individual savings for retirement. Um, the way a pre-tax and, and most of most of the 401k plans in existence are involve pre-tax money. The way it works, and I, I understand you know it, but for people who might not, the, the way the way uh, the traditional pre-tax 401k plan works is you can designate X amount of money that from your earned income that goes to fund retirement savings. It goes into a 401k plan, and it reduces the amount you put into the 401k plan reduces your taxable income for that particular year. So let, let's, and again, I know there's deductions and nuances, but for the sake of argument, let's say you make $60,000 a year. You designate $10,000 to go into your 401k plan. The employer takes it out. It goes into the 401k plan. That $10,000, it, it doesn't count against your income for that particular year. So 2017 tax year, you make 60, you put 10 grand in, you're going to get a statement, you're going to pay taxes on 50,000. That $10,000 goes into the retirement plan and it is allowed to grow tax-free until you take it out. So this encourages individuals to save because they get an upfront tax break. They're going to have to pay the taxes on that $10,000 that they put into the 401k plan when they start taking it out. So the government's going to get its money, but it's delayed. It's a way of encouraging people to save for their retirement. And, you know, the, the profits on it, the ten grand. if you leave it there and, you know, it, it's turned into fifty grand. we are going to have to pay taxes on, on the profits as well, but you're going to be able to delay it till you get to retirement. It is an incredible incentive to do that. Now, the other type of IRA is what they have, the other type of 401k is the Roth 401k. The Roth 401k is where it's after-tax money. This is a much more uncommon thing. You make sixty grand. You put $10,000 in, you pay taxes in 2017 on all 60000 but that $10,000 that you put in then grows tax-free, you know, and, and the profits on it grow tax-free, so you never have to pay taxes on it again. Um, that is a much less common thing because one of the things that encourages a lot of people to save is they get that upfront tax deduction. One of the things that is being talked about in Congress as a way to pay for tax reform is to do away with the pre-tax 401k plan. The idea being essentially make people pay 
upfront taxes and then treat everything like a Roth account. Everything then gets to grow, you know, tax-free, but you don't get the tax break up front. Uh, the, the numbers kind of vary, but based on, I think, the, the estimates are that by allowing people to reduce their current income and therefore the tax they pay on it, um, it last year it cost the government about $90 billion. And I say cost because, again, the government's going to get it back at some point in time. But if you wanted to pay for massive tax reform, one of the things they're looking at is saying, hey, if we do away with the 401k plan, make everybody, at least the pre-tax 401k plan, make everybody pay up front, well, then we'll get the tax money up front and we'll have all this money to do things. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this would be devastating to, it's already hard enough to get people to save for retirement. Taking away the immediate tax incentive to encourage people to save, I think would absolutely be devastating on retirement savings. And yes, while you'd get some money up front, I think big picture, it would create a lot more problems than it would solve. What do you think? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you are somebody who participates through your employer in the, like the 401k program, um, would it change your behavior if you were no longer allowed to get that upfront tax break um, from saving? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1119. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven twenty-two. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, I hope you have a good vacation. Thank you. Um, me and my brother are going to hang out for a couple of days. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. So, so I, I think this is a horrible idea. Basically, you're trying to uh, take away from people who are doing the right thing, uh, making them pay, making making them pay for for uh, making them basically pay for the uh, tax cuts of other folks that probably aren't going to do the right thing, that aren't right. going to do the right thing. I, I, I think uh, uh, the, the, the fact that we have the Roth, the Roth IRA and, and the regular mm-hmm. uh, IRA, in fact, is, is, is a great idea yeah. for America, and, and, and it has proven over the years how, how great it is for, for retirement. Yeah, you know, Vincent, I was and, looking and so at this study. Gonna, now you're going to de-incentivize de- it. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the study that say that, that, that they believe that there's only about 20%, one out of five Americans who feel comfortable they're going to have enough money for their retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, you you take away this incentive for people to save, um, or, or certainly to save as much, and that that number is going to skyrocket. We've already got a problem. You're exactly right. We've already got a problem with this. Why? I, I think the the, the 401ks, you know, and the tax deductible. I think that's one of the greatest things for the middle class that government has ever done. Especially if we want people to be responsible. Why would we kill that? That's right. and that's one of the fears. That there are people who are like myself who are close to retirement, and, and people who are, are, are young people who are trying to get there. Right. The fact is that the government is somehow going to take coming in and basically take more of your retirement money yep. when you're trying to save, and that's one of the biggest fears that that because that pot is so huge. Right. That they figure that hey, sooner or later government's going to come after it. Well, see, that's always been my fear about the the Roth. I, that I mean, I understand that the way this was, and and I mean, I don't, I don't have any insight, but it's always been my fear because the way that was always sold is, hey, you pay the taxes up front, and then everything grows, you know, tax free in the future. I could easily see some Congress down the line saying, you know, no, let's let's go in and let's start taxing you on the profits because you haven't paid tax on that. I and I think that's a legitimate fear. That's why I've always been a little bit concerned 
concerned about that. Most of my most of my retirement money is in the pre-tax 401ks that I'm going to have to pay tax on. I, I'm, but I'll live with that. I'll pay. Yeah. And also, what, what, you know, the Republicans have talked about for years that, hey, they, they can go in and cut government in order to pay for this tax cut. Right. And, right. and so, so, so where are those particular plans? Nobody, we don't hear about those things anymore. So, so now we're going to go after something that the public is really benefiting. From. Yeah, no, think right. It is really benefiting. I mean, this is this is one of the things that incur. You know, we I rail, you rail all the time about the need for people to be responsible. This is a way we have of encouraging people to take responsibility. It is an incentive. And the government, the, the G is going to get its dough. I mean, it's it's not like that, that money, you're not going to pay taxes on the thing. If you want to, I mean, if, if you want to tinker with the law and say, okay, you have to start taking retired mandatory distributions at age you know, instead of like sixty nine and a half at age sixty seven or something, you you can do that. But you know, the, you, you're gonna the, the G is gonna get its dough. Dave in Waukesha, Dave, you're in six twenty WTMJ. Hey Jeff, how you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think of this idea? I think it's horrible. Number one is I don't think it's clearly thought through because when you think about it, um, the IRA has been around for what uh, probably four hundred one k rather has been around for long time, probably yeah. thirty years, yep. forty years, whatever. I mean, so you have all those people who are you know now all that money is going to be you know starting to come offline so to speak right you know, and it's you generate more revenue from both the you know the tax that you're paying on the original contribution and also the, the gains yeah. which like you say you don't get that on the on the on the, um, on the rock so right. it's, in the long run it's going to wind up hurting us and you might fine, you get a short-term bump yes you know, you know but you're not having as many people going into the, to the right. workforce as there was Right, twenty, thirty, forty years ago. Yeah. So I mean, right? Yeah, yes, down the line, the 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 effect will be, I believe, fewer people will fewer people will save money for their retirement. Later on, like you're saying, when more people are retired, there will be even more demands because fewer people will be able to take care of themselves. It it's a short term fix um, that creates, in my opinion, a disastrous long term policy. Right. Exactly. I mean, because then then you look, you know, then it's like. Like it's been dammed up. You know, there won't be any more right. taxes coming on on stream. You know, personally, I think a lot of you know mm-hmm. a better deal in some respects, only because it grows you know tax free. Right. But there's always the, you know obviously the, the worry of you know what's here today might not be there tomorrow. Well, well, right, and I think a lot of it also depends on what your on individual circumstances and what well, your you tax, tax bracket rate, is. Right, and, right. Exactly. You got you're, you're putting in at a lot lower rate than you might be theoretically at a at, you know when you're able to withdraw it. So, I mean, right. Right. Cons, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Thank, and see, and I mean, I, I'm not I'm not playing my friend Dave Spano. And that's why, you know, I think that's why it's, it's good to have, you know, trusted, you know, financial advisors and accountants and people like that that can help you figure out. I mean, there's entire industry that's developed around the, the strategies of when you take money out of your various, you know, IRAs or your 401k plans or, or whatever. There, there's all these strategies. And that's again, that's why you find investment professionals and accountants that know what they're doing and can tell you the tax implications and all those type of things. So I leave that to people who are a lot smarter than me. What I do know is, and I go back to how we started this segment, I believe that for middle-class Americans, one of the greatest savings incentives we've ever had have been IRAs and these 401K plans that you can sign up and try to save for work. If we were to suddenly eliminate the pre-tax 401K plan, it would be, I think, disastrous to personal savings rates and, candidly, I mean, if the trade-off is we're going to lower the corporate tax rate from 35% to 15%, but we're going to screw over middle-class 
lower middle class and upper middle class taxpayers to do it by taking away their ability to save for their retirement, um, I think it would just be horrible. 1128, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Hey, we want you to follow the Brewers. Be listening again tomorrow, 910, for your chance to win a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Braves and to qualify to follow the Brewers for Cincinnati for their matchup on Labor Day. Follow the Brewers. I love this promotion. It's sponsored by West Bend, the Silver Lining, Noodles and Company, and the home of the Brewers, 620 WTMJ. Thursday night... What, about 6 o'clock Pacific time, that would be 8 o'clock our time. It is going to be interesting to see what happens. We've been talking about about Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter is, of course, the conservative commentator, provocateur. Um, I think she's a little nuts, (laughs) to be honest with you. But she's got a lot of fans, and, and, and there's people on the right that are a little nuts, and there's the Rachel Maddows of the world on the left that are a little nuts, and I I. You know, and just like I don't know if Rachel Maddow really believes some of the things she says, sometimes I wonder, you know, from a conservative perspective, whether Ann Coulter believes some of the things she says or whether she's just doing stuff to be provocative. And I, and that, that, that's fine. I've, I've never quite figured that out. But she was invited to give a speech at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, one of the most liberal institutions in the country. But interestingly enough, the home of the free speech movement back in the early 1960s, um, University of California, Berkeley, which is like San Francisco, this was the, the center of college students, you know, wanting the right to stand up and challenge authority and engage in free speech. I mean, this is it laid the groundwork for all the protests that came later for the Vietnam War and later Watergate and stuff. That That's University of California, Berkeley. Well, all right. The free speech movement, it's really very interesting because now you have a number of liberal groups who, including some anarchists, who've decided that that really we, we can't have free speech if it's conservative speech. And so the argument is, if you come out and you extol conservative principles or you support President Trump, that's not free speech, that's hate speech. And we have to shut that down. And that is what has happened in the past. You've had conservative speakers recently have spoken at University of California, Berkeley, and protesters, including people showing up in masks, have shown up for the purpose of trying to disrupt the events. And you have had um, you, you've had many riots that have developed, looting, windows being broken, um, things being set on fire. And as a result, the way University of California Berkeley has responded is we're going to keep the conservatives off the campus. We're going to stop this because we're essentially going to let the left-wing anarchist mob rule. So the college Republicans book Ann Coulter to come out and, and give a speech. And it was originally scheduled for Thursday night. It was going to be on campus. There was going to be a room, etc. Um, she signs a contract. She's being paid to go and do this. Uh, Cal Berkeley says, no, we believe that if you come here, all these crazy left-wing you know, snowflake-slash-anarchists are going to turn out. There is going to be violence. We can't keep you safe. We can't keep other people safe. So you can't come and speak. Hmm. After that story gets out, they reverse themselves and they say, okay, well, we've changed our mind. We're going to let you come and speak, but we're not going to let you come and speak when you were booked to come and speak. So instead of Thursday night at 6 or whatever, what you can do is you can come next Tuesday, the following Tuesday. That's when um, it's the week between like classes and exams, so students largely aren't going to be on campus, and also 
um, we're going to arrange for you to speak, but you have to be done by 3 o'clock in the afternoon because if you're not done by then, if you're speaking later, more people, including more protesters, might show up. Well, Ann Coulter says, well, that's nuts. I'm not agreeing to that. And by the way, I have a contract. My speech says I'm supposed to be there at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. I'm going to be there at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. So the follow-up is that, um, well, here's the story in the Washington Post. The University of California at Berkeley is bracing for massive protests and potential violence in an open public space known as the, 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 the home of the free speech um this is the plaza where this whole thing it's sprawl plaza so because berkeley you know hasn't arranged to give her a, a room or a location to speak at tonight tomorrow night she says okay fine we're <clears throat> it's, the weather's good we're going to do this in this open-air plaza. That's what we're going to do. And so now Berkeley officials are really even more freaked out because they're saying, okay, well, if you're in this open-air plaza, it's going to be more difficult. People, we're, going to have, we're going to have all sorts of you know, violence because all the crazies are going to attend. We're not going to be able to screen them. It's going to be an absolute mess. And are you sure you really want to come? Well, here's the thing. This is caused, first of all, because Berkeley gave in to the mob in the first place. If they would have just done what they should have done, which it said, we are not going to allow the terrorists, we are not going to allow the anarchists to dictate who gets to speak on our campus or not, and if you come out and you engage in acts of violence, you are going to be arrested. If you are a student, you are going to be expelled, but regardless, you are going to be arrested and you're going to be prosecuted. But, but of course, we, we don't do that on American college campuses now because we allow, again, the mob to, to rule. In this case, it's the left-wing mob that's ruling. So now Ann Coulter's response is, hey, I'm going to come, and I'm going to be speaking in this open-air plaza, and whoever can come can, can come. Um, and it's an issue that you know Berkeley's going to have to deal with. Short, short of arresting her if she tries to come on campus, I don't know how they stop that, and that would, of course, I think make matters even worse. But, but here's the bottom line to all these school administrators. You cause your own problems when you give in to the mob. If when other conservative speakers showed up to give speeches, if and then you get the anarchists that are out there and the people that are lighting fires and breaking windows and engaging in acts of violence. If you would have had a police presence that have come in and arrested all those people then, and then if you would have had judges that did what they were supposed to do, which is lock these people up. If you're, I mean, I'm sorry, if you're out there throwing rocks at folks, you, I don't care whether you're throwing rocks at conservative activists or whether you're throwing rocks at citizens on the streets of San Francisco. You should be arrested and you should put in, be put in jail. If the authorities would have responded appropriately in the first place, you wouldn't have these issues. I don't know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow night, but Ann Coulter says she's going to be there. School officials are going to decide have to, how they have to handle it. But if the way they decide to handle it is to stifle the free speech rights of the college Republicans and the conservative speakers, that will be a form of an outrage as well. You can't give in to the mob. Coming up next, Walker's idea on the transportation budget. I think he's on to something. It's 1143. This is Jeff Wagner. Eleven forty-six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Um, this is a this traffic situation is a big deal down in Kenosha County. U.S. Uh, forty-five in Kenosha County is closed in both directions between um, a one forty-two and eleven. It's closed because of a hazard materials spill. 
There was a truck that was uh, ammonium nitrate, I believe. Um, and so Kenosha County Sheriff's Department is the responding law enforcement agency. So you want to avoid that. Um, again, uh, ammonia is not anything that you want to fool around with. They're advising residents in the area to keep their windows shut and things like that. Um, so that's a, that is a very, very big deal. So you want to avoid that area at least for a while. Uh, there, we've got a special programming coming up a pro- program coming up a week from today, and I do, I do want to call your attention to it. It's been 15 years since seven-year-old Alexis Patterson disappeared during her short walk to school in the morning. If you were around at the time, you, you will remember that. To this day, it remains one of the saddest mysteries in Milwaukee history. Do not miss a special edition of Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Again, it's next Wednesday. John Mercure is going to be devoting the entire show to the mystery surrounding Alexis Patterson's disappearance a decade and a half ago. And I think he's going to be bringing some of the reporting that only John Mercure can bring. I I know some of the stuff because we kind of talked about it. You know, um, I know some of the stuff that John is planning. It it is must-listen-to radio. Absolutely must-listen-to radio. It's a week from today, next Wednesday, starting at 3 o'clock, right here on WTMJ. So you definitely want to check that out. All right. To the extent that there is... There is a there's no question nationwide there is a rift in the Republican Party. You've got, you know, President Trump who I I, I think I, I mean I'm not sure and I've said this before, I mean a lot of his policies are conservative, some aren't, but he's certainly not an establishment Republican. Then you've got the more establishment Republicans, then you've got some I don't know, some very, very conservative Republicans, the Freedom Caucus. You know, the, the demise of health care reform was, of course, due to the, the Freedom Caucus, the conservatives. The most conservatives wouldn't get on board with what everybody else wanted. And since no Democrats were on board, the thing ended up dying, and it hurt the Republican Party brand in general. Maybe health care reform will be back. Maybe it won't. You know, who knows? In Wisconsin, as a general rule, the Republican Party, um, during the entire tenure of Scott Walker, has been united. I think it is still united, but to the extent that there is a split, you have some, and I don't think it's many, but you have some members of the Assembly in particular who have been, I don't want to say picking a fight, that overstates it, but you know, expressing Differences and disagreements with Governor Walker over the issue of transportation. There is no question that roads, whether it's boy, I was dry. I took road because there was some stuff going on and the the home bridge was closed. I, I took roads to Miller Park yesterday. Man, you drive through certain parts of Milwaukee, and it's it's just I, it's it's amazing to me. I was on some stretches of roads that I never travel on. I, it was amazing to me just how crummy some of these roads are. Just I mean, staggeringly crummy but you know but but you've got you've got all these different road improvement projects like local countywide and of course statewide so you've got the roads that need to be taken care of plus you have all these expansion projects that are going on widening 94 from the milwaukee county line down to um, illinois the program to expand the freeway out to the zoo interchange the zoo interchange work and that's just talking about the area around here that's not the whole state and the question becomes, of course, how do you pay for it? And to the extent that there's been a rift, you have a, at least somewhat of a rift developing because Governor Walker has been making the argument that he didn't get elected to raise taxes. And so he said, look, the, the gas tax, under his watch, it's not going to go up. 
And then somebody said, well, how about increasing the registration fee? And he said, nope, I'm not into registration fees. And I, I don't think toll roads are on the line. He's said, his approach has been, okay, let's, let's borrow – um, you know, and, and we'll, we'll deal with this. We can still get a relatively good deal. Well, some Republicans don't want to do that. The latest proposal that the governor is floating is maybe in an effort to pay for this needed road work, what we can do is we can take other funds. We can take general revenue funds um, that might be spent on other things, and we can simply declare that the, the, the roads are – a bigger priority and you know we can you know fund we can put money in to help deal with these transportation projects now again the, the devil is in the devil is always in the details the question is going to be okay where where is the money going to come from and one of the things that's such a winner about governor walker's budget proposals is he's looking at putting you know a bunch of money you know, back into the schools, back into the, you know, K-1 through K-12 education. You know, you, you've got a budget which I think takes advantage of a lot of the savings and that we've been able to develop over the last several years because of Act 10 and also the growth that you are seeing in the state. But what he is also saying now is, hey, you know, we've got this other – if we've got this money that's here, rather than increasing taxes – Rather than expecting those of you who drive on the roads and pay gasoline tax when you buy your gas, or whether than in taking you guys you pay more when you register your cars, we, we've got this other money that's lying around, and maybe it's time to start saying transportation needs to be a priority, and let's move some of this money that still it's all tax dollars, but let's move it in. I think this is a perfectly reasonable way to approach this particular issue. I mean, here here is the reality. We have paid for road improvements essentially exclusively through the gasoline tax and the registration fee. And the truth is those don't generate enough money anymore because of a variety of thing, reasons to do what needs to be done. So why not – draw on some general revenue. Now, you understand some people are going to be screaming, well, that means you're going to be taking away programs for the poor people and stuff like that. Well, not necessarily. But if you recognize transportation being a priority and you also recognize that, you know, Republicans don't run and Republicans don't win on raising taxes, taking general revenue and using it to do certain things, um, I think that that's that's just a great opportunity. And I think it's something that we definitely need to look at. And I think that if there's some Republicans in the Assembly or in the Senate that think that tax increases are the way to go, they need to wake up and smell the coffee. It's 11.54, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 11.57, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. No Scafidian Bills stat today because we've got an early Brewers baseball game. Our coverage starts right after the 12 o'clock news. As I mentioned earlier, um, I'm taking the next couple of days off. I'm, my brother's got a business trip, and um, I'm going to try. I'm going to tag along with him as the as the plus one. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the plus one, but um, I will be back on Monday. We do have Follow the Brewers, even though I'm not here, so be sure you tune in 9.10 tomorrow, 9.10 Friday, for your chance to follow the Brewers. All right. One one final thought. I, I I'm a huge movie fan, and I, I think one of the most iconic characters created in movie history has been Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones. I love the Indiana Jones movies. The fourth one, not quite as much, but the first three, particularly the first and third, I thought were absolutely great. Um, Disney announced um, that there there's going to be a fifth movie, 
and they've decided that they're not going to that that Harrison Ford is going to continue. It's not like Batman or Spider Man where they're going to replace characters. Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones, and he will return to star in the next Indiana Jones movie, and and that's great. But here's the other thing that they've done. Um, the film was originally supposed to be released in July of 2019, so two years from now. They've now pushed it back to July of 2020. Um, Harrison Ford currently is 74. He will be 78 on July 13, 2020, which is three days after the movie opens. Now, I just when you think about Indiana Jones and all the adventure, I don't know that you necessarily think about a 78-year-old Harrison Ford, but that's... That's what you're going to get. Um, some people and some characters, I guess, are just ageless. All right, I am out of time. Brewers baseball is coming up right after the news. Have a great few days. Stay dry. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.